when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord Jesus. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Hello and welcome uh, to Bloomcast, to a bonus episode. Uh, this is Lex Paulson of Shakespeare and Company, uh, and we have uh, the very special privilege and delight uh, today to welcome with us um, Ambassador Dan Mulhall, who is, uh, in addition to being Ireland's ambassador to the United States, uh, is the author of Ulysses, A Reader's Odyssey, which has been one of our companion texts throughout this celebration of the uh, centenary year of, uh, of James Joyce's Ulysses. Welcome, Ambassador Mulhall. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here. It's great to be connected with uh, Shakespeare and Company. Of course, I've been there a number of times on past visits to Paris, but it's great to connect with you in this way for this special centenary year and to um, to mark the fact that Shakespeare and Company has played a huge part in the uh, history of modern literature by being the publisher of James Joyce's Ulysses. And I can tell you, traveling around the United States over the last four and a half years, I have lost count of the number of... Uh, um, first edition uh, copies of Ulysses I've seen in libraries and institutions uh, all over this great country. So um, Shakespeare and Company has made a huge impact on the uh, American library scene where many of the uh, <laughs> most precious holdings uh, of those uh, libraries are indeed um, come from the, uh, the Shakespeare and Company uh, portfolio. And some of those books obviously have some have some great stories of how they were smuggled in. You know, I think Ernest Hemingway had some smuggled in through Canada. Is, is that yeah, that's right? That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, in fact, I was at the um, the uh, Harry Ransom Center at uh, the University of Texas there a couple of weeks ago for a wonderful exhibition on um, women and the making of Ulysses, which uh, focuses on the uh, the work done by Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, the editors of the Little Review. Uh, of um, Harriet Weaver, Harriet uh, Shaw Weaver, um, who was the egotist um, editor and also a great uh, philanthropist who supported mm. James Joyce heavily during um, the years he was writing Ulysses, and also, of course, uh, Sylvia Beach. So I, I had a great um, uh, time there and really um, got to know a lot more about Sylvia Beach and the uh, importance, uh, the important role played by Shakespeare and Company in bringing this text uh, into the public sphere. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been one of the light motifs of our of our celebration of the book is the role of women in bringing this book to to life, and especially radical and queer women. That these were women who were rule breakers and pioneers, um, who were without whom there would be no Ulysses. Indeed, indeed, and 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 the exhibition, which I thoroughly recommend for anyone who happens to be visiting the Austin area, you can probably also access it online. It's done by. Uh, Claire Hutton, an Irish uh, Joycean uh, who's uh, based at uh, Lockborough College, Lockborough University in England, but she is the one who curated this wonderful exhibition. And it brings together some wonderful material uh, about the little review about Shakespeare and Company and about the uh, uh, the role played by uh, Harriet Shaw Weaver. Um, Claire has um, calculated that Harriet Shaw Weaver um, gave James Joyce the equivalent of, in today's terms, of a million dollars. <laughs> um, in the course of his writing life in order to support his great uh, labors in producing Ulysses and later on 
uh, Finnegan's Wake. So yes, a uh, hugely important story. And I think um, Shakespeare and Company is the perfect place to bring that story to light. Um, we, we'd love also to hear a bit of your story. Um, the, your book, uh, Ulysses, A Reader's Odyssey, traces the odyssey um, of language, the odyssey of character, the odyssey of, of, of ways of the world um, that we have in, in Ulysses, but also your own odyssey, which has lasted 40 years, um, as you say, in, in, the, in the track of the sun uh, in strange lands. I, 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 I almost dropped the book out of my hand because the, your first page, it says, uh, it says, I set off at dawn one day. It was to the 10th of March, 1980, which just happens to be the week that I was born, which is okay, very good. Odyssey's uh, intersected in, in that sense, and I was I was born in Washington, and and your path led you to Washington, but it's led you to many places. So, could you say a little bit about the the ways in which Ulysses has accompanied you uh, in all these different cities and and places uh, over the years? Yes, well, my odyssey with Ulysses um, begins in probably an unusual place, which is Kansas City, because I was in Kansas City in the summer of 1974 on what was called a J1 visa, under which our uh, students had the opportunity. This was a program that was started by um, JFK when he visited Ireland in 1963, the summer of 63. And so by 74, a lot of Irish students were going every year. Mostly they went to uh, Boston, New York, uh, Cape Cod, the kind of places where you'd expect to find Irish Americans. I ended up in Kansas City for reasons that I, are too complicated to go into, but I had uh, some people there who, um, who looked after us and uh, made sure that we were, um, you know, uh, welcomed uh, warmly by the Irish community in Kansas City. But on one occasion, I was staying at the uh, what's now Rockhurst University in Kansas City, and I wandered into the bookshop. Uh, there was nobody in there. It was a very quiet day. The students were all on um, vacation. And I picked up a copy of Ulysses, and uh, I bought it because, I, of course, I knew about the book, but I'd never read it, even though I had studied English literature at University College Cork, and I had a, uh, had a, uh, had a BA in English and Literature and had a... Uh, uh, had an MA in history, which um, included um, some work on Joyce, but I had never actually dipped into Ulysses. So, I um, I I am um, that evening. I, I um, sat down in my in my student accommodation uh, to read the book, and I I raced through the first uh, two chapters, and I thought, well, no big deal here. Very straightforward. <laughs> very not that difficult, really. What's the what's all the fuss about? And then I remember coming to um, episode three, ineluctable modality of the visible. <laughs> of course, I didn't have a dictionary on me and I couldn't Google. There was no Google in those days. So I really did find uh, episode three uh, rather difficult, which is why I recommended in my book that anyone who finds um, episode three challenging should perhaps uh, decide to skip it and move on to four, which is a much more accessible chapter and much better, much more fun and, and much easier to respond to. So that was my first experience. And I think I labored on for a few more evenings. And then the pleasures of the summer of 74 in Kansas City, I'm afraid, uh, overtook my reading of Ulysses and I, I ended up putting it aside. But I didn't, but I, but I put it in my bag, in my, in my suitcase, and I, and I transported it back to Ireland. So when I left uh, Ireland uh, a few years later to go to New Delhi in 1980, um, the book was in my small consignment of personal effects, mainly books and, and some vinyl records at the time that I happened to have collected. I, I wasn't, I was, uh, you know, young and, and uh, not, not much, uh, didn't have much experience or much uh, opportunity to, to collect things. But I did have a, have a small library and I brought the copy of Ulysses with me. And um, in New Delhi in those days, um, you could have your books bound in leather. 
uh, by a local bookbinder, and it was it was very reasonably priced. So even a, a young diplomat with very little um, uh, in the way of financial acumen or financial resources was able to have a certain number of my personal books, my library, um, bound in leather. And Ulysses, I had it bound in leather, and I still have that copy because, of course, uh, you can't throw away a leather-bound copy of a book, but I wouldn't anyway. But but I have now got quite a few different editions of Ulysses, but the one that I acquired in Kansas City in 1974 still means a lot to me. It's a kind of an heirloom from my past. It's one of the things that I, I, you know, that I know I've had in my possession for almost 50 years now, and that's an important thing when you get to my age. <laughs> so, um, so then, of course, in, um, um, in India in those days, um, there was a lot of interest in Irish literature. Um, and I remember being invited to speak at the All India English Teachers Annual Conference, which in 1982 was held in New Delhi. And I was asked to give a talk, uh, give two talks, uh, one on, on W.B. Yeats, and the idea of a national literature, which I did, and which uh, attracted a huge audience of about 1,500 people turned up to this, uh, to this um, keynote uh, lecture, which I gave. And of course, I was able to focus on Yeats and the idea of a national literature, because that was a very relevant issue for, for India at that time as well, because there was a lot of debate about you know, Indian identity, to what extent mm. it, it, had, it, was, it was based on the English language, or what mm. extent the local languages should, should take precedence. And then, of course, I gave a talk on a portrait of the artist as a young man, and I, in particular, focused on uh, those lines um, from um, a portrait where uh, the young Stephen uh, says that he, when a, uh, when a soul is born in this country, nets are thrown around it to prevent it from flight. I want to fly those nets. Uh, and the nets he mentioned were the nets of, of language, nationality, and religion. And of course, those issues were very relevant to India at that time as well, where there was mm. debates about religious identity, about about national identity, and about language. Which language should be the uh, language of India? So, so, I, so I, I realized at that time that that our literature resonates with people around the world in ways that perhaps are unusual for a country of our size, and that therefore that interest in our literature was and could be a real resource for Ireland, helping us to tell our story around the world. And I've tried to use Ulysses over the years, stretching back uh, to those days in India 40 plus years ago, in order to tell Ireland's story to people who otherwise might have no affinity or no association with Ireland, but through our literature have an interest in our country and its culture. I, I I love that story for, for for so many reasons that you're finding ways of, of Irish literature um, uh, to to build bridges to for people to see each other in, in different ways in the story. It also strikes me how different uh, your path um, was from Stephen Dedalus's in the sense that there, there are very few places I could imagine Stephen Dedalus least than joining the civil service or being working in an embassy in, in India because he wouldn't perhaps have seen that as as compatible with the desire to be free. So to what degree did you also want to fly those nets and, and how were you able to fly those nets and, and still commit yourself to a life of, uh, of public service? Well, I think that... Um... The most famous line, the line I like best from uh, a portrait is um, uh, where he talks about going into exile to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. And I, I, I wouldn't ever claim such lofty <laughs> ambition or certainly wouldn't claim 
any achievement that could even um, remotely uh, correspond to forging in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. But there is a sense in which um, when you're a diplomat and you go abroad, you are, um, you become a voice for Ireland and you also become uh, the face of Ireland and the ears of Ireland. So your job, the job of a diplomat is to, to speak for Ireland around the world, to connect Ireland with the countries you're, 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 you're based in, in productive and positive ways, and to listen to those countries and to convey back their understanding of the world and its affairs to uh, colleagues in Dublin. So there is a sense in which um, um, diplomats have a, have a sort of a similar role to writers in that we're trying to, to make sense of the chaos of the world and make it comprehensible to our audience. Now, our audience is a different audience from the audience that James Joyce would have aspired to. But nonetheless, we all have our audience and we all have our subject matter and we all have a job to do in trying to, um, to boil down, to distill whatever wisdom there is to be distilled from the affairs of the world and to communicate them to a wider audience, but also to colleagues in government, thereby hopefully influencing and helping to shape government policy. So I've been very pleased and proud of the fact that uh, the island I represent has changed over the last uh, 40 years very dramatically. It's changed economically from a relatively less well-advanced uh, European country to now a, a very well-advanced country. It's also changed from a country that was a little bit perhaps narrowly focused uh, in certain areas in the past. And now I think it's a country with a very open attitude towards a lot of things and a very tolerant atmosphere. Um, which I think is to the credit of our people and our country. And it makes me particularly proud to represent that evolution uh, in Ireland's circumstances that has occurred during my lifetime, during my 40 years in the Foreign Service. Mm. And, and, and those of us who work in the field of, of you know, democracy and, and citizen engagement, um, I, I'm very inspired by the example Ireland is setting about bringing, bringing citizens into the Constitutional Assembly, the Citizens' Assemblies that were followed by this great national dialogue on, on, these, on these big issues of, of, of marriage, but also of, of reproductive rights um, and, and others, that Ireland has, has shown an evolution of democracy in the last 10 years that I wish, uh, I wish America would, uh, would learn from. <laughs> Well, it's not for me to comment on that, but I am certainly uh, proud to represent uh, an Ireland that has shown itself uh, to be open, uh, to be um, capable of evolving uh, in response to the wishes of our people, because that is ultimately um, all that matters, is that uh, any government, any society, any political system has to serve the interests of the people of that uh, of that country, and that I think is is what has happened in Ireland. That that uh, our um, our values and our our outlook now reflect the changed outlook of Irish people. In the past, uh, people's outlook was different, and therefore our country was different. And I think the key thing is that um, political leadership should be able to to both um, respond to, but also to mold those uh, those impulses coming from. The public and to to shape them into values and policies that are actually um, able to make a difference both nationally and also in the international arena. I'd love to I'd love to on that note ask you about some some um, passages in Ulysses, some some moments in Ulysses that um, that speak to these civic aspirations, the 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 conflicts of 
of narratives and 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 these nets of 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 nationalism and and uh, and religion and 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 others um you you advise readers uh to feel free to um to skip around and and uh uh, make their reading experience an, an open and, and flexible one. So I'm going to, uh, with your permission, flexibly jump around a little bit in, oh, <laughs> in the please. book. Um, so with maybe a, a little bit of a focus at first on some on some of the the um, the episodes that that uh, that bring out Irish history and and the fantastic uh, cusp that you that you cite in your book. And I'll, I'll say in passing for for potential readers of, and I think hopefully everyone listening to this will will pick up a copy of Ambassador Mahal's book is that uh, I. I've now uh, we've we've for the podcast read um, you know quite a number of companion books books to Ulysses and I think something your book does uniquely really to any book I've I've read on Ulysses is trace the touch points in in Irish history um, with both the 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 period in which Joyce was growing up to the period where the book takes place in 1904 to the period where he's writing Ulysses in the 19 teens and just the the phenomenal changes. Um, happening in, in Irish politics and, and Irish society, and so in Aeolus, for example, in, in in Book Seven, when they're when they're at the newspaper office, the, the Freeman's Journal, um, and it's it's a it's a it's an episode about the winds and the windiness, and uh, it's you know these incredible flights of of rhetoric. And as someone who who you know you you've had to probably endure more high flown rhetoric than most of us have had to in our lives. How to write some of it too. <laughs> some of it too. Um, what what do what do you see in that chapter about both the 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 gift uh, maybe an Irish cultural gift for language and expression, but also yeah. they seem kind of in a sense paralyzed by it. It's there. It's a lot of talk and little action. They they you know Parnell has failed and and these are great yeah. talkers, but but maybe less effective in in political action. What 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 do you make of all that? Well, I I think I have written um, somewhere, probably in the book, but maybe somewhere else as well. Or um, I've written that I I see Ulysses as an elegy for the sort of dying world of Parnellite nationalism, um, which is about to be replaced uh, and actually had been replaced by the time Joyce finished writing his great novel by a very different tradition that you only get glimpses of in um, Ulysses. Um, so Parnell is kind of ever-present. He seems to be in the minds of people um, throughout Joyce's work because I think for Joyce's father's generation, Parnell was it. Parnell was the uh, the JFK equivalent, I suppose, mm, um, mm. in American terms. He was the, the, the kind of uncrowned king, and I... I take the view that when um, Parnell fell from power, a whole generation kind of lost its way and lost its sort of lost its hope. And I I see Simon Dedalus as this kind as a representative of that uh, generation of people who were had huge hopes invested in Parnell and then had those hopes dashed, and as a result, were kind of rather bitter, caustic individuals. Um, roaming around the pubs of Dublin, um, you know, um, rather rather aimlessly um, um, venting their spleen um, because of the frustrations and the disappointments they had suffered on account of the fall of Parnell in 1890. And I make the point that it's extraordinary that the novel is set in 1904, which is like 13 years after the death of Parnell. And yet Parnell is still a presence in the novel. Mm. 
people are still his, his brother's literally there playing. His brother's literally chess. there, and he's the kind of you know. And then of course, more than that, and this is even more significant, is in the Cersei episode, um, Bloom at one stage becomes the new Parnell and yes, becomes exactly. the, and, and wants to create a new Blue Muslim in the Nova Hibernia of the future. So, so you know, Parnell is everywhere, uh, but there are references to Arthur Griffith. He's referred to a number of times. Bloom obviously admires Griffith's, um, you know, way with words. Griffith was essentially a journalist, propagandist, um, 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 you know, uh, polemicist. Um, but Bloom clearly admires his work, as indeed did Joyce, who once said that the United Irishman, the the um, uh, magazine that uh, that um, Griffith edited and largely wrote, uh, was the best thing that that was available to read in Ireland. So he appreciated Griffith. But Griffith is referred to a number of times as the coming man, the you coming know, man, right. um, uh, you know, he's a sort of a, he's very, you know, the square headed fellow, uh, but he hasn't got much of a, you know, much of a, you know, much of a, um, of an instinct for the mob. So, you know, he wasn't, wasn't a man of action. He was a man of words, a man of ideas. But of course, by the time uh, Ulysses was published in 1922, Arthur Griffith was actually the president of Dáil Éireann and therefore effectively the head of state of the emerging uh, Irish uh, free state, which was, um, Brought into being that year, so so I, I do think there's a there's a certain kind of um, forward glance um, towards the future, but essentially it's an elegy for a dying uh, world of parliamentary nationalism. And in the Aeolus chapter, it seems to me what you get is you get this this um, sort of satire on that um, parliamentary nationalism that 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 was running out of steam. Uh, in 1904 and then ran out of steam completely in 1918 when the Irish party were defeated comprehensively at the election uh, by what was called the Sinn Féin party, though it had very little uh, resemblance to the party that Arthur Griffith founded, ironically, in 1904. And that's why you get in, in Ulysses references to Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin Awan and so on and the, to the resurrection of Hungary, which was a, a, uh, a book that uh, Griffith published in 1904 um, which was a collection of essays he wrote for the United Irishman on um, the Hungarian parallel for Ireland. So Griffith, remember, was a, a dual monarchist. He wasn't a Republican. He didn't. He wasn't arguing for independence for Ireland in 1904. He was arguing that Ireland should follow the Hungarian example and extract a dual monarchy from the British um, government and thereby, you know, end British rule or change British rule fundamentally by creating this dual. British and Irish monarchy. Now, that idea never really took off. Uh, but after the uh, Easter Rising of 1916, um, Sinn Féin, which Griffith had led for um, 13 years at that stage, 12 years at that stage, Sinn Féin became the kind of title or the, you know, the sponsor, if you like, of the national movement that uh, sought to build on what had been achieved uh, and the failures. But, the, you know, the failure and the achievement of 1916, the failure was that the revolution didn't succeed. But the success was that it actually um, uh, sowed the seeds of what happened six years later when the Irish Free State came into being in 1922. It's 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 a phenomenally interesting moment. You you bring this you bring out the connection to, to Hungary, which yes. of course is the land of of Bloom's uh, Bloom's mm. forebears. And and in Cyclops, there's this little tantalizing aside yes. that oh you know that that um, I think I think it's uh, is it Cunningham John Wise Nolan no, John Wise Nolan who 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 mentions that Bloom had 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 discussed uh, tactics from the Hungarian you yeah. know from the Hungarian yeah. revolution <laughs> <laughs> with Griffith which is of course is Joyce's 
joke, really, in a, in a way that, of course, how could the fictional character have given uh, have given Griffith the ideas <laughs> behind <laughs> the resurrection of Hungary? So he makes Bloom into this kind of creator of the New Ireland, if you like, because, of course, uh, Griffith eventually became this uh, major figure in the period after the 1916 Rising, having been a very minor uh, figure in the political world of Ireland in 1904. He came into his own. He, he became, I mean, the coming man actually came into his own in the period after 1916 while Joyce was busy writing Ulysses. And, and but I mean, this this is so contrary to what, to how Bloom is often presented. He's presented as, you know, as someone who's in his own head, who's, you know, I think you called him ponderous at, at one point, which he undoubtedly is, of course. But there's these little hints like that, that, uh, line, that line in Cyclops that Bloom, not only is he, of course, civically aware that we, we get that everywhere. He's talking about the tram. He's talking about universal basic income. He's talking about uh, animal rights. I mean, all of these um, and, you know, his acts of charity. He's clearly someone who, who cares deeply about about the, the community, but also that little that little aside about uh, Arthur Griffith as if Bloom is maybe a, a, a greater and more effective citizen activist than all of these pub talkers put together. What, what do you think? But also in Penelope, um, Molly um, says that he had thought about running for election, uh, running for a seat um, at, one, at one stage. That's another little sort of reference to uh, to Bloom's potentially having had a very different future in prospect for him. Remember, Molly sort of, one of the reasons why she's a little amb- she's ambivalent about him is because he didn't turn out to be quite what she thought he was going to be because he presented himself as potentially wanting to run for election. And also she thought of him as a Byronic figure, uh, you know, right. as a potential poet. And, poet. In fact, yeah. and in fact, in the end, I, I find it intriguing that that uh, the reason why she kind of sort of prefers Bloom over Boylan, though she recognizes Boylan's attractions both physically but also uh, because of his money. Uh, she might be able to wheedle some money out of him. But she says, ah, uh, he... He wouldn't know poetry from a cabbage. So cabbage. in the end, so in the end, uh, the reason why she favors Bloom and Stephen over Boylan is because they at least have some flair for poetry, whereas obviously Boylan doesn't have a poetic bone in his body. <laughs> no, clearly not. Um, although he has other virtues from a from Bali standpoint. He, 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 indeed, indeed, indeed. And, and his and his da- and his dashing, etc. So you you mentioned you mentioned poetry, and um, you have spoken about uh, your your love of William Butler Yeats, and and being in a sense uh, joined to uh, a deep love of of Joyce, and and uh, as 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 we mentioned just before the the, the podcast, my my dad has has uh, attended several of the events in in DC where you celebrate both both Yeats and Joyce together kind of a complicated relationship between Yeats and Joyce. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, yes, complicated because they were a different generation, really. I mean, Yeats was like, uh, what, 17 years older than Joyce. Yeats was of a very different mindset. I'm just uh, reviewing a book uh, called Consuming Joyce by John McCourt about, you know, the reception of... of, uh, of Joyce's work in Ireland in the century after the publication of Ulysses, and I and I made the point that uh, I, I use this, um, uh, you know, the the uh, the way in which in which um, uh, Joyce teases Yeats in the uh, in Ulysses. Remember, in the Scylla and Charybdis episode, where um, Buck Mulligan is is chiding Stephen, and he says. Ah, what were you doing uh, slating that old Hey Gregory for her drivel? Right. Would you not? Uh, would you not have the Yeats touch? 
the most important uh, book published in our time, One Thinks of Homer. And what, um, what Mulligan was getting at there, and what Joyce was actually, he was poking fun at himself because, you know, because um, it, 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 it was true that um, Gregory, Lady Gregory got Joyce a job uh, reviewing for the Daily Express when Joyce was penniless. So at least there's some revenue coming into the Joyce household. And then Joyce writes an uncomplimentary review of, um, of her book, Poets and Dreamers, uh, because Joyce didn't like that sort of writing, didn't like the Irish uh, the literary revival kind of tradition and preferred a more modern take on writing. So the point I was making there is that Yeats was part of a kind of a coterie of people who worked together and log rolled each other's books. You know, Yeats would, you know, would praise Lady Gregory's um, latest book uh, in one journal and she would praise his book in another journal and Catherine Tynan would do the same and AE and so on. So they all kind of had a similar agenda. I think Joyce didn't really have that kind of collegiality about him. Of course, he had his admirers like uh, Pound and yeah. Elliot, um, but he didn't. He didn't really belong to a kind of a coterie. He didn't yeah. really belong to that kind of school in the way that uh, Yeats definitely had a kind of a had a kind of a, a coterie of people that 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 were part of his circle that 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 sustained him and that that, that worked with him to kind of promote the idea of a national literature for Ireland. Um, and of course, Joyce famously refused to take part in the Irish, in, in the Irish Academy of Letters, which Yeats was trying to um, get underway in the 1930s, and Joyce turned him down. But nonetheless, I think that if you look at the relationship uh, generally, first of all, Yeats tried to be helpful to Joyce when Joyce was going to Paris. He met him in London, introducing the people there, looked after him, fed him, put him on the train uh, to Paris, was even prepared to, to you know, listen to Joyce being arrogant and telling him that, uh, that yes, he it was too old for Joyce to help him, you know. So, so, um, so you know, but so, so it's, and then during the First World War, when Joyce was out of funds in Zurich, um, Yeats actually arranged for a pension, for a British government pension for Joyce, which was quite an achievement to get money from the British government in the middle of a war, a war for, wow, for yeah. someone who clearly wasn't a war, war wasn't going to write war poems or wasn't going to write anything that would help, uh, you know, the you know because, the fight on the Western Front. Um, mm. In fact, I think, um, you know, Yeats was asked by the people who were um, deciding on this um, stipend to be given to Joyce whether uh, whether he had said anything about the war, and the and the answer was Yeats said, look, he's not the kind of writer that would really ever, uh, you know, even think about talking about the war so forget about that but but even so Yeats managed to get him this uh, funding and then when Ulysses when he started to read Ulysses in the um, little review he was captivated by it and you know you would have expected Yeats to be hostile in a way he was from an earlier generation you expected him to be skeptical hostile about what Joyce was doing but he understood and I think I quote in my book one of the things Yeats said about Joyce which to me at least suggested he understood what Joyce was trying to do, and that was mm. quite, so, uh, quite something, given that Yeats was from a very different kind of literary school and a very very mm. different tradition of writing. So, so I think they, the relationship, and then when Yeats, um, when Yeats won the Nobel Prize, uh, Joyce sent him a very kind letter of congratulations, and then um, when Yeats um, died in France in 1939, um, Joyce sent a wreath uh, to the funeral, which unfortunately didn't arrive in time, but nonetheless, I think they had a, a, considering the differences between them in, in background, outlook, 
mentality, literary uh, philosophy, I think they had a, a pretty reasonable and um, positive relationship. And uh, of course, Joyce um, played games uh, with Yeats, uh, but um, and had a certain amount of um, ambivalence towards the, what Yeats was trying to do. But I don't believe there's any uh, sense in which um, Yeats was anything other than um, approving of Joyce, and Joyce was anything other than approving of Yeats. And uh, my friend Joe Hassett, who's written uh, a lot of books about Yeats and uh, one book about Joyce, um, makes the point that um, that um, Joyce was, um, you know, was really um, uh, very keen on on some of uh, Yeats's poems. And if you look at at some of uh, Joyce's poetry, it's not dissimilar to the poetry that uh, Yeats wrote uh, early in his life um, when he was a, uh, a, a, a emerging poet. Um, and in fact, in Ulysses, you have uh, you know who goes with uh, who goes with Fergus is actually quoted um, by Buck Mulligan in the Telemachus episode, the opening episode of Ulysses, um, and um, the uh, and we know that Joyce uh, put that um, poem to music at one stage, and that uh, you know he was someone who really loved that line about love's bitter mystery. Mm. So uh, so I so I think they they they, they had a complicated but altogether relatively positive relationship, given that they didn't see each other very much because uh, they lived in, in, in different countries for most of the time that uh, they were active as writers. It's 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 a it's a funny thing. I mean, I, I read, of course, Ulysses and when that when, uh, you know, as a 19 year old and uh, and when the, the who goes with Fergus line is, is quoted first in Telemachus and then and then in Circe, it's the it's the thing that Stephen's mumbling, of course, when when Bloom, when Bloom picks him up and he thinks that she has a girlfriend named named, named Ferguson. And of course, I said, "Well, yes, of course. If you're if you're quoting poetry and you're in Ireland, why wouldn't it be W. B. Yeats?" That's the, and then I've, and then only later did I realize, well, actually, they were, they were. I mean, they knew each other. These were people, and that poem was, I mean, pretty fairly new at the time, wasn't it? I mean, it wasn't. Yes. It certainly hadn't achieved canonical status in the way that it, in right. the way that those poems are today, right. which is a it's a funny point. Let's if if we could step back inside briefly, back inside Barney Barney Kiernan's pub. Yes. Um, you know, you you um, write very eloquently uh, in in your uh, in your in your overview of of Cyclops, which which uh, is clearly as as uh, as beloved an episode for you as 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 it is for me and for us on the Bloomcast. We talked about this idea of one eyedness and two eyedness um, all through all through our podcast, and and uh, and so nationalism um, justifiably gets a pretty. Uh, negative uh, criticism from from Bloom, and, and therefore we can imagine from Joyce, who of course was a political refugee from from Trieste, and and uh, and, and was seeing in real time the the terrible toll of of nationalism. And I was I was reading the other day the philosopher Richard Rorty, who was um, a great uh, pragmatist uh, philosopher, who wrote in his book called uh, "Achieving Achieving Our Country." He wrote national pride is to countries what self-respect is to individuals, a necessary condition for self-improvement. So I, I'm curious to get your opinion and, and your opinion reading reading Ulysses and, and in your own um, from your own experience as a diplomat, you know, what what where what is what is the difference, the useful difference between a national story that gives pride and a national story that that causes oppression and destruction? Where where how do you how do you look at those those two types of stories? Well, it's a very complex uh, equation, of course. Um, I I agree that uh, national pride 
is um, an essential uh, ingredient for any country, for any society. If you look at uh, the people of Ukraine, um, think of the way in which they're standing up for their pride in their country. Now, pride's not perhaps the right word, but it's it's, it's part of the same complex of, of issues. They are actually fighting for the existence of their country because they believe that their country represents something that they're willing to fight for. And that is an ultimate test of national pride. So there's nothing wrong with... I mean, I, I, I'm always a bit, a bit irritated by people who criticize nationalism. So, for example, someone might say, well, you know... Um, even Yeats said this, you know, was it needless death after all for England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream enough to know that they are dead. So so Yeats was there maybe expressing some doubt about the, the national struggle that was unleashed by the Easter Rising of 1916. And of course, a lot of people have, have taken that, that theme and have sort of been critical, um, particularly the revisionist uh, historians um, um, of Ireland of, you know, the last uh, 50 years. I mean, it's all connected, of course, with uh, what happened in Northern Ireland, which understandably, you know, made people reflect on on, on the Irish past and, and, and be critical in their, in, the, in their analysis, and that's fine. Um, but my point, and I think, I, I think it was Joyce's point, but I, I, I can't point to hard evidence of this, but... Um, People who say that, you know, nationalism in its Irish form is somehow not quite um, uh, okay, but the nationalism that drove people to kill each other in their millions on the um, battlefields of the First World War, that was fine. That was a, that was a noble cause, you know? So, I mean, you can't have it both ways. Um, mm. So, I mean, my own view is that I think Joyce was an Irish nationalist, Um he didn't go along with everything that um, came from Ireland. He was critical of Ireland, as I think any good nationalist should be, because the idea that you can have a perfect nation or a perfect political system or a perfect society, that's for the birds. Um, it's always a struggle to create the best that we can have at any time in history, and we're always constrained by what happens in the wider world, what happens in our own country. But we have to keep going and trying to um, make our country the best country it can be. So I think that was Joyce's attitude. I mean, if you read, as I've done, um, the the essays that Joyce wrote uh, about Ireland in the Italian-language newspaper in Trieste during his time there, he comes across as a fairly standard Irish nationalist of the you know early 20th century version. Um, of course, he didn't. He didn't take much of an interest in Ireland as it was evolving between, or didn't say much about Ireland as it was evolving between 1916 and 1922, because at that time he had other things on his mind. He was writing essays, but, mm. but I mean, for example, his essay on Parnell, I think, is quite a brilliant piece of historical analysis because mm. he talks about Parnell striding along the borders of insurrection, mm. and he makes mm. the point that Parnell, um, while uh, a democratic pacifist, uh, didn't, uh, he, he, he was a political reformer, he was a parliamentarian, he was a Democrat, but at the same time, he wasn't slow to remind people in Britain that there were other forces in Ireland and that they had to be, you know, taken on board as well or else things might get out of hand. So so I don't think Joyce was was a, I mean, he was a, he, he was a critic of a certain 
brand of nationalism, as was WBH indeed, because remember, the sort of um, nationalism that, um, that, that Joyce um, parodies and lampoons in Cyclops was the kind of nationalism that Yeats came up against uh, in that, around that time too. But of course, Joyce was observing this from a distance, whereas Yeats was in the middle of it. And if you, if you think about a poem like, East, like September 1913, you know, mm. romantic Ireland's dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. It's talking about people who fumble in a greasy tail and add, the share, add prayer to shivering prayer until they have um, dried the marrow from the bone. So Yeats was pushing back against this um, uh, narrow-minded nationalism also, as was Joyce. But it doesn't mean that either of them weren't in their own way, by their own definition, also... Um, Irish nationalists. It's just that they had a different view of Ireland from the one that maybe was becoming um, the majority view in the period during which they were um, writing their great works. It's 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 a it's a phenomenally interesting, uh, I think, parallel that, that you draw and and you you talk about how Joyce was on was both as you say a, a great historical analyst, but also in so many ways prescient and pointing toward the future. I mean, vegetarianism, you know, animal cruelty, uh, tobacco, women's rights, um, universal basic income. Uh, you know, how how can we make sense of of the 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 notions of progress that we see in this book embodied in Bloom that he of course is a, is a is a you know a figure uh, a prophet you know a stranger in his own land and and yeah. shouting in the wilderness but but that he's saying these things that we look even a hundred years later and we haven't you know we've gone in the direction of Bloom but but he still is ahead of us and so how how do you make sense of that? Well, I think the reason why a hundred year old book like Ulysses is still being read and talked about and podcasts devoted to it and so forth and films and everything is because it does have that universality that it doesn't just belong to its own time. There are certain works of art that transcend their own time. And is that because the writer in question had this kind of vision that um, went beyond their own time? Or is it because they were tapping into things that are actually universal and eternal? Uh, and I think that's probably the reason why Joyce's work um, speaks to us as a contemporary. I once um, wrote a piece saying that you would expect a hundred-year-old uh, novel to be a bit of an bit of an antiquarian curiosity, but that Ulysses is anything but that. And I love quoting um, Bloom's um, manifesto when he was, um, you know, being presented as the great reformer. It was, mm. um, you know, uh, two acres and a cow for every child of nature. And I thought, it sounds like California in the 1960s to me, you know, it's kind of, you know, I mean, you know it, it's a wonderful um, line. And, and it's so, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, you'd say it's, it's definitely Bloomy and it's definitely, it's definitely Leopold Bloom, but it also has a certain kind of ring that, um, you know, reminded me of my youth in the 1960s when, um, Californians might have had that kind of manifesto for their political uh, world at that time. Sure, and you bring you bring in Bob Dylan blowing in the wind, and yeah, it, it yeah, yeah, as yeah, well. Indeed, I yeah, mean, yeah. there's all this utopianism at the same time as we've as we've seen as in a conversation. Bloom has this practical. He's you know he's change, he's exchanging tips with maybe with with Arthur Griffith about about organizing techniques you know from from Hungary. So there's so many layers. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, he like he's he's. I mean, for me, he's a dreamer. But he's also got his feet on the ground. And that's where all dreamers ought to be because a dreamer that doesn't have that kind of rootedness uh, in the daily life is likely to have 
their dreams turn into nightmares. And uh, Bloom, I think Bloom appeals to me at least as someone that that has this idealistic streak. He does dream dreams, but at the same time, he's very, you know, for example, um, when, when he thinks about, um, uh, you know, um, advancing his uh, liaison with Martha Clifford, uh, who, of course, is really Peggy Griffin, we discover later on. Mm. When he thinks about that, you know, he obviously is attracted by the idea of taking it further and seeing, and then he says, oh no, uh, you know, I hate this idea of having to run around corners and hide, and then what would Molly, what would happen if Molly found out about it? He obviously fears that. So so he's kind of this, this guy that, that thinks about doing great things and then realizes, and, and the other thing is, you know, I mean, if you think about the, you know, the, the um, uh, when he comes across the ad for the, uh, for the um, settlement in uh, Tiberius on the shores of Lake Galilee and thinks mm. that'd be a great idea. And then he thinks, no, it's a barren land. It's really got nothing to offer. So he's got this kind of ability to dream, but then to come back to reality and be, and, and, and be pragmatic and sensible and to weigh things up and to come to sort of middle-of-the-road conclusions. He's, I see uh, Bloom as a kind of a, a, as a great centrist because, and I, I often think about um, about Yeats's great poem, uh, Things Fall Apart, The Centre Cannot Hold. Um, Bloom is someone who somehow pulls everything back to the centre. His life is kind of, is centred because while he has no reason to be anything other than frustrated and angry with his wife and with his lot in society, he takes a kind of a strange contentment out of his rather you know, rather unspectacular everyday existence. And I, I, I love the part when, uh, you know, he leaves uh, Glasnevin Cemetery at the end of the Haddis episode and says, back into the world again, oh, life, you know, and, you know, <laughs> going back to a warm bed, you know. So, so these are the things that prevent him from becoming this frustrated narcissist. And I also take the view that if narcissism is one of the, the failings of our era, um, Bloom is the kind of wonderful antidote to narcissism because everything is kind of taken uh, in, in its stride and no setback. I mean, when John Henry Menton um, dismisses him uh, when he when he uh, at Glasnevin when he points to the the little dent in uh, Menton's hat, uh, he he just doesn't doesn't sort of take it badly. He says Grant, and, and he moves on. So, <laughs> and then when uh, when um, when Miles Crawford, the editor, dismisses him and, and sends him away, sends him packing when he's looking to, um, to um, uh, place the ad, um, um, Bloom, you know, instead of being angry, he sort of reacts, with, okay, fine, and he goes on. And then, you know, the next episode or a couple of episodes afterwards in, you know, the library, in the, in the National Library, in the Scylla and Charybdis episode, he's there still trying to get information to place that ad. So he's not deterred by this rough treatment he receives at the hands of Miles Crawford. He actually decides to endure. And I think that this is a, a novel which is, um, it is a kind of a, um, a, um, a tribute to endurance, to the heroism of everyday life and to the ability of Bloom to endure and to make it safely back to his uh, home at Eccles Street. Not having fought great battles and having... Uh, you know, uh, fought with um, one-eyed monsters and and being, you know, um, almost devoured by cannibals, um, but having kind of everyday 20th century experiences, but yet coming through them and registering a modest triumph when he makes it back to the bed he shares with his Penelope, Molly Bloom. Mm. Well, Ambassador Mullis, it's been it's been such a wonderful experience. One last question, if, yes. if it's okay. You are have been the host of many Blooms Days, uh, Blooms and Yates Days, um, yes. and I'm curious for your and I've I've played that role a little bit myself in Paris for Shakespeare and Company, and I'm curious for your advice 
uh, Bloomsday host to Bloomsday host, what what are your um, you know, what are your principles for what makes a great Bloomsday celebration that you'd like to share with us? Well, um, you have to have um, good readers. Um, and in London, I was very fortunate when I was there that there were a lot of Irish actors that uh, were able to come and uh, perform for us. We don't have the same community of actors here in um, in Washington, but we, we, we have found a, a set of good readers uh, who um, make the occasion great. So I think two things. First of all, you've got to have a good Molly. And at the moment, we have a woman called, called Christina Sevilla, who's actually a U.S. trade negotiator, but also a wonderful <laughs> actress. And she does the best version of Molly that I've come across. Well, I shouldn't say that because I have a lot of friends that have played Molly over the, the years best. that might be offended. But, uh, but she's certainly, she's, she's, uh, she's great. And she lights up the, the occasion. And also, you have to have music. You have to have someone. And the last year, we, you know, we, we brought in people from the Choral Arts Society who, um, mm. who sang La Chidorem and uh, Love's Old Sweet Song uh, and other... Um, and I have people lined up again this year for what I hope will be a bumper uh, occasion when we're going to have music, song, uh, words, and generally a great celebration of the centenary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses by Shakespeare and Company in Paris on the <laughs> 2nd of February, 1922. Thank you, Sylvia Beach. Thank you, Shakespeare Company. And thank you to all who have listened into this podcast. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you for being part of Bloomcast, Ambassador. We wish you a happy Bloomsday in a few weeks. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks. Well, thanks everybody for listening uh, to Bloomcast, and uh, and we will see you soon.